Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the food, the culture, the people, and the history of the state of Israel. Hey, look, if this is your first time watching, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. Um, share this podcast with your friends and your family. Make them a part of the 12 Cities in Israel family. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, they're available on Amazon. They are the best way to learn Hebrew and the best way to brush up on Hebrew. As I said, they're available on Amazon for Kindle. Um, you can, if you don't have Kindle, uh, you don't need a Kindle. You can put it on any of your electronic devices. It's available for Android um iphone ipad pc and mac and the link to download it is available in the description below hey um all right welcome back guys um we are getting ready to wrap up this uh this the 12 cities in israel it's been fun i've learned a ton um and i've learned a ton in this episode and researching this episode as well as you can tell by the board um we are still in tel aviv tel aviv um and yes i love that omer Adam song um you should look it up maybe i'll put the link in the description below um it is an amazing place um and we did the history uh we did the history last episode a lot of you might have been surprised to find out that there was so much history in a city that seemed to have sprung up out of nowhere but there was and uh now we're going to tell you about the modern city so located in the uh on the mediterranean coastline and with a population of 460,613 tel aviv is the economic technological and cultural heart of israel so yeah it is uh it's the place to be if you want to be um some would say jerusalem but Tel Avivers would, is that the right one? Tel Avivers? Uh, Tel Avivites? Tel Avivians? Tel Avivians. I don't know. Um, it's, uh, but that, it, it is such an amazing special city. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So on May 14th, 1948, um, Israel declared independence. And at this time, Tel Aviv had a population of over 200,000 and was the home of the State of Israel's Temporary Government Center until the government moved um, itself to Jerusalem in December of 1949. Now, a number of foreign governments, due to the potentially contentious nature uh, of their individual stance on the status of Jerusalem, chose to maintain their embassies in or near Tel Aviv. And I'm going to go into that a little bit more later. Um, now... Now, 
now, now. Um, <laughs> currently, uh, Tel Aviv is known as Tel Aviv Yafo. So the city of Yafo, otherwise known as Jaffa or Joppa in ancient history, um, Yafo is a part of Tel Aviv. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how that happened. So in 1948, the boundaries of Tel Aviv and Yafo became a matter of dispute uh, between the municipality of Tel Aviv and uh, Israel's government. So Tel Aviv had hoped to incorporate only the northern Jewish suburbs of Yafo, um, while the state of Israel wanted a more comprehensive and complete merger of the two municipalities. Now, to make the issue even more problematic, Yafo was situated in what was proposed to be the Arab portion of the United Nations partition plan, whereas Tel Aviv was not. Even And no armistice agreements had yet to be agreed upon. So it also must be noted um, that the UN partition plan of 1947 was soundly rejected by all parties advocating for the Arab residents as well as the Arab residents themselves. So they didn't want to be a part of it, um, but it came to pass. Now, with this in mind, on December 10th, 1948, uh, the Israel uh, Israeli government announced the annexation of Tel Aviv um, to Tel Aviv of Yafo's Jewish suburbs, um, the Arab neighborhood of Abu Kabir, the Arab village of Salama, along with a portion of its agricultural land, and the Jewish slum. Yes, I said that right. Known as Hatikva, so it was a downtrodden area uh, of Yafo, uh, the greater municipal, um, Yafo, the municipality of Yafo, the city of Yafo. Um, they had this slum known as Hatikva Jewish slum. So on February 25th, 1949, the Arab, the abandoned Arab village of Al Sheikh, uh, Muanis was also annexed to Tel Aviv. And on May 18th, 1949, um, Manchia and part of Yafo's uh, central zone were also added. Now, a vote was held in the government on October 4th, 1949 uh, to unify Tel Aviv and Yafo, but implementation did not occur until April 24th, 1950. Now, the official name of the newly unified city was Tel Aviv until August 19th, 1950, when it was renamed Tel Aviv Yafo, which is what we uh, what we see today, and this was done to pre preserve the historicity of the uh, of the ancient port of Yafo. So that's how Yafo became a part of uh, became a part of Tel Aviv. It was uh, honestly, it was just boom done. Uh, we've decided so. Uh, it, a lot of times in history, it, it is just that simple. Um, and it's, it's done nothing but enrich Tel Aviv, uh, culturally, historically, all of that. I'm going to have a sip of my coffee. Hey, Peter and Jay hats. This is for you. Hold on one sec. But the converse is true as well. So. Some could argue that um, Yafo, which might not have had uh, 
as much economic clout as it would have needed for uh, public works and stuff like that now has access to a much larger tax base and is able to do a lot more with it. So I I know there's a lot of contention about, you know, it's an Arab town and, and Tel Aviv is a Jewish town. But in the end, both cities benefited from the what we can use. And, and I'm hesitant to use this word because it's such a catchword right now. But the cultural diversity of both of these two cities has only made the entirety of Tel Aviv Yafo much stronger, better, more beautiful, and just cool. So there you go. That's my take. <laughs> All right. So now the war's over. And throughout the 50s and into the 60s, Tel Aviv was continuing its role as the cultural and business hub of the nation. And it saw a number of new buildings rise to either employ or house the city's new immigrants. So what do we have? We have in 1948, we have have the establishment of the state. After that, a bunch of... um, couple of years not immediately that's what's interesting uh the refugee camps uh for holocaust survivors i think there was one in cyprus um israel took uh, a large number of these uh world war ii holocaust survivors and refugees in many of them moved to tel aviv because culturally it matched a lot of what they had lost in terms of in terms of everything in terms of music art literature and just general culture uh so tel aviv saw a big swelling of population at this time now as a byproduct of the new construction some of tel aviv's older building buildings were demolished um it was a contentious issue that still disturbs the city's neighborhoods today now Controversially, one of the historic buildings demolished was the Herzliya Hebrew Gymnasium, a high school that was established in 1905 during Ottoman control of the area to make way for the Shalom Meyer Tower, which you can see today. Now, this high rise was completed in 1965, and it remained Israel's tallest building all the way up until 1999. During this booming period, of the early 1960s, Tel Aviv's population peaked at 390,000 and represented a total of 16% of the entire country's population. So that's a big, I mean, think about it. That's the, like I said, if you, if, if you wanted to be who you could be, you know, top dog in Israel, you would be in Tel Aviv. Business-wise, uh, you would be in Tel Aviv. So following what seemed to be a uh, a boundless expansion for Tel Aviv, um, the early 1970s brought extended uh, an extended and continuous period of population decline. Uh, The decline was accompanied by the blight of what can be described as urban decay. And by 1981, the city was in what seemed like a hopeless downward uh, spiral. This, coupled with an aging population of 317,000, meant new construction had moved out of central Tel Aviv and into its outer neighborhoods and its neighboring cities. This period was marked by a mass migration of residents from Tel Aviv to cities like 
Petitikva and Rechovot um, where better housing conditions were available. You had more room and you weren't paying as much, so you're going to move. That's going on in, in the United States right now. You're paying a lot and you're not getting as much, so people are, after the COVID thing, are just kind of spreading out. So complaints of cramped housing conditions and high property prices pushed families out of Tel Aviv and kept the younger population from moving into the city. This perpetuated the common image of Tel Aviv as a decaying city, and Tel Tel Aviv's population fell by a whopping 20%. Now, um, I didn't include it in in this, but I, I will tell you about it. So there was... A lot of so remember I said uh, Tel Aviv was a cultural center. So there were a lot of writers and poets, and some of these writers and poets wrote about this uh, this decline of Tel Aviv in some of their most seminal works. So as the '80s came to a close, attitudes towards Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv's future, became remarkably more optimistic. As it had become a center of nightlife and discotheques uh, for Israelis who lived in the suburbs and the neighboring cities, so if you were going to go out, you would get in the car and you, or on the train, and you would go into Tel Aviv. Because of this, Tel Aviv was starting to become known as the non-stop city, a reflection of it of this growing recognition of its nightlife and twenty-four-seven culture. Now, Tel Aviv's recognition as a nonstop city had come to replace its former title as the first Hebrew city. So it was, and it's still Hebrew. People are still speaking Hebrew in it, but the focus is not on the Zionist enterprise anymore. It's now into the booming 80s. You know, the uh, what's that movie, Wall Street? With the. <laughs> With Tiger Blood, I can't remember his name right now, but that, that was what was going on. It wasn't just going on in the United States in the 80s and the uh, early 90s. It was also going on in Tel Aviv. Now, now that the decay and uh, depopulation had been stopped, Tel Aviv again resumed its inclination to build up towards the sky. What eventually became the largest project undertaken during this era was Israel's first shopping mall named the Dizengoff Center. And if you've been there, it is awesome. I love this place. Um, After Tel Aviv's first mayor, it was completed in 1983. Other projects that were completed during this time were the construction of Marganit Tower in 1987, the opening of the Suzanne... um, the Dalal Center for Dance and Theater in 1989, and the Tel Aviv Cinematheque, which opened in 1973, but it was redesigned and remodeled in 1989 during this period. So in the early 1980s, and this is where we get back to the embassies, 13 embassies in Jerusalem moved to Tel Aviv as part of the UN's measures responding to Israel's 1980 Jerusalem law which stated that Jerusalem, complete and united, is the capital of Israel. That's how I feel. Hey, if you got a problem with that, put it in the comments. Uh, because of this, today, most, uh, uh, most nations' embassies are located in the Tel Aviv greater area, with the exception of the United States 
and 30 other nations, which uh, a b- bunch of them have moved back recently. So we're really excited about that. Um, so in the 1990s, uh, Tel Aviv saw a population boom due to a wave of immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Tel Aviv welcomed 42 thousand new immigrants educated in the scientific technological medical and mathematical fields doubling the number of engineers in the city because of this and i didn't know this this is so cool because of this tel aviv soon began began to emerge globally as a center for technological innovation leading to the construction of a number of new skyscrapers and high-tech office buildings to house a new era of high-tech business so what's interesting about that is that at the in in the build-up to world war ii and the expulsion of jews from germany and german territories um you had a lot of mental capital um migrating out of germany okay uh we have einstein we have a number of different people who were instrumental jews who were instrumental in the manhattan project in a number of scientific fields that had germany not been such a knucklehead um and hated us so much they would have they would have prospered so eh oh well um the same thing went on in the soviet union how crazy is that so it's not to say jews are better we're not better um but we do have worth um and you would be putting yourself in a precarious position to disregard us and to expel us so there get to feel good about myself uh (laughs) all right so despite the substantial new investment in what was a struggling city because remember i told you tel aviv was uh experiencing decline the tel aviv government struggled to cope with this influx of new immigrants now because its tax base had been shrinking for so many years due to its long-term population decline this meant that there were minimal funds available to invest in the city's long deteriorating infrastructure and housing by 1998 tel aviv was on the precipice of bankruptcy a problem made worse by a wave of Palestinian suicide bombings in the city from the mid 1990s and lasted uh, that lasted on up until the end of the Second Intifada, which was between 2000 and 2005. Um, all of these woes, including the uh, impact of the dot com bubble on the city's tech sector, were devastating. So you remember I said what was going on in the U.S. Um, in business was going on in Israel. Um, but none were as painful as the assassination of Israel's prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, at a rally in Tel Aviv in support of the Oslo Peace Accords on November 4th, 1995. The outdoor plaza where this occurred, formerly known as Kikar Malke Yisrael, has since been renamed Rabin Square. Now, there are some people who are going to be frustrated by this um, because they're going to, you know, the Oslo Accords and they feel that uh, Yitzhak Rabin did a massive disservice by signing them. But tough crap 
you know, you don't get to, you don't get to do this. And it's an honor. He's a hero of the state. He served in some of the most vital campaigns to protect uh, the state of Israel and went on and served numerous posts where he continued that and was the prime minister. And to just do something like that is despicable. Um, and that's how I feel. So in 2003, UNESCO recognized Tel Aviv's white city um, and it's home to modernist Bauhaus architecture as a world heritage site. It's beautiful. If you can get to Tel Aviv and you can see it, you can look it up on the internet, but look up uh, Tel Aviv Bauhaus. Um, as a result of this, the city enacted new laws to protect these buildings and their historical significance. It was during this time that the Tel Aviv government hoped to reverse the financial misfortune of the previous decades. Excuse me, I hiccuped. Uh, misfortune. Uh, let me read that sentence. <laughs> it was during this time that the Tel Aviv government hoped to reverse the financial misfortune of the previous decades and focused on attracting more young residents to the city. This led to significant investments being made towards infrastructure and quality of life improvements in the city. You can see it today. Um, former industrial areas like the city's previously derelict North uh, northern Tel Aviv port and the Yafo railway station were remodeled and upgraded. Older buildings began to be renovated and a process of revitalization began in some of the poorer neighborhoods of southern Tel Aviv. Now, I will say some of those, um, like Florentine, some of those neighborhoods are pretty gross. Um, but it is, I, I it was explained to me that a lot of that has to do with the age group that moves in there. Um, which, I don't know if I believe that, but basically what they're saying is... Uh, in no uncertain terms, is that young people are slobs and they don't care to take care of themselves. But one of the things that I noticed in Israel is that um, the the idea. So I grew up in the in the seventies uh, and eighties, um, and there was this big conservation and movement going on in the United States, and that was when recycle started. You didn't throw garbage on the ground. You made sure to put it in a can. And that never seems to have happened in Israel. And that would be a welcome thing because it would mean that a lot of people uh, would take care of Israel a lot better. It's not just a problem in Tel Aviv. It's a problem throughout the country. So the 2000s brought a change in the demographic population to Tel Aviv as young residents moved to the city in search of success by 2012 28 percent of the city's residents were aged between 20 and 34 years old replacing the older population that had made tel aviv the first hebrew city uh, between 2007 and 2012 the city's population was growing at an average of 6.29 percent transforming the city's financial deficit to a budget surplus with a triple A credit rating, a plus with a triple A plus credit rating. Now the city of Tel Aviv had become a financial and technological powerhouse and the place to be, if you wanted to make a name for yourself in Israel, 
was Tel Aviv. So yeah, that's uh, that's basically the modern history of Tel Aviv. I'm gonna have a sip of coffee. Hold on. Pretty cool, right? Um, it is. It's a cool place. It's a place that's gone, in, and it's funny because if you go there, you couldn't really imagine it be going. It went through its ups and downs, but you couldn't really imagine it going through its downs because it's so fabulous. You look at all the, it literally is. That's the one word that I would use uh, to describe is uh, Tel Aviv, and it's fabulous. Like, Jerusalem is holy, and um, Beersheba is um, arid, and Tel Aviv is fabulous. Um, it's just, it's such a cool city. Um, now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the city and this one's actually a lot easier because I've spent a lot of time in Tel Aviv. So I really didn't have to do that much research. Uh, but I did have to do research for the next subject that I'm going to cover, which is sport. Um, I live for sport. Uh, so I love to tell you about the sporting activities and the teams and all that. So I'll go into that right now. So Maccabi Tel Aviv Sports Club uh, was founded in 1906, and it competes in more than 10 different sports. Um, its basketball team, Maccabi Tel Aviv Basketball Club, is a world-renowned professional team that holds 54 Israel titles, has won the Israel Cup 45 times, and has six European championships. Its football team, Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, has won 23 Israel League titles and has won 24 state cups, seven Toto Cups, and two Asian Club championships. Um, and one of its players, Yael Arad, an athlete in Maccabi's... Uh, oh, no. Sorry. Totally different. They also have something else. So Yael Arad, who is an athlete in Maccabi's Judo Club, they have a Judo Club, too. What don't they have? He won a silver medal in the 1992 Olympic Games. How cool is that? Now, Hapol Tel Aviv Sports Club, it was founded in 1923 and has more than 11 different sports clubs, including Hapol Tel Aviv Football Club with 13 championships, 16 state cups, one total cup, and one Asian championship. Um, and it also has the uh, Hapoel Tel Aviv Basketball Club. Now, Bnei Yehuda Tel Aviv, which won one Israel championship, the State Cup and the Toto Cup twice, is the Israel uh, is the Israeli football team that represents um, just a neighborhood, and it is the Hatikva quarter in Tel Aviv, and it is not the city's team. It's just for the uh, Hatikva. Remember that that uh, that slum I was telling you about? They got their own football team. Don't feel too bad. Betar uh, Tel <laughs> Aviv, Bat Yam, is a football club that used to play in the top division. That's another club, but now plays in Liga Leumit, a lower division. And also represents the city of Bat Yam, which is just south of Tel Aviv. Maccabi Yafo is another football club that also used to play in the top division. This club now plays in Liga Aleph and represents um, Yafo. The football club Shimsh, uh, Shimshon Tel Aviv, you guessed it, used to play 
in the top division and are now playing in Liga Aleph. Uh, just to give you an idea of how much Tel Aviv loves its football, um, here are the rest of the teams that currently play in the city. Hapo uh, and, and I'm saying this because I don't want to piss anyone off. Football, woo. Uh, Hapoel Kvar Shalem uh, Football Club, uh, B'nai Yafo Orthodoxim, uh, Betar Ezra, Betar Yafo, Elitzer Yafo Tel Aviv, Football Club, Roy uh, Heshbon Tel Aviv, Gadna Tel Aviv, Yehuda, Hapol Kiryat Shalom, Hapol Neve Golan, and Hapol Ramat Israel. And all of these are different football clubs. And the like I said, you know, the fans, the ultras, I'm not taking the chance that I don't. And I probably missed one, so somebody's going to be ticked off. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> all right, so um, you can't play football without a pitch, of course. So Tel Aviv's home uh, to is home to a number of football stadiums, and the largest of which is Bloomfield Stadium, which contains 29,400 seats and is used by Hapol Tel Aviv, Maccabi Tel Aviv, and Bnei Yehuda. Other clubs uh, play at the Hatikva Neighborhood Stadium as well as numerous smaller facilities throughout the city. Uh, Menorah Mivtachim Arena is a large multi-purpose indoor arena and it is the home to Maccabi Tel Aviv basketball. And for Hapoel Tel Aviv's basketball team, their home is the Shlomo Group Arena. Now Tel Aviv is also home, and this is so cool, to the National Sports Center Tel Aviv, also known as the Hadar Yosef Sports Center. And it's a compound of stadiums and sports facilities. It houses the Olympic, it also houses the Olympic Committee of Israel and the National Athletics Stadium with the Israel Athletic Association. So that is dope. I love that. That's so cool. Um, for other sports, Tel Aviv has two rowing clubs, one of which is the Tel Aviv Rowing Club, which was established in 1935 on the banks of the Yarkon River and is the largest rowing club in Israel. Um, they have a vibrant matkot or beach uh, paddle ball um, scene, which a beach paddle ball was invented in Israel. Um, they have the Tel Aviv Lightning, who represent Tel Aviv in the Israel Basketball League, um, and an annual half marathon run in 2008 uh, by 10,000 athletes with runners coming from around the world. So it's been going for um, over uh, yeah over 10 years. So in 2009. The Tel Aviv Marathon, the full marathon, it was revived after experiencing a 15-year hiatus. And since then, it has run every year, attracting a field of over 18,000 runners. So 18,000 people come from around the world to run in the Israel Marathon. Um, now for skateboarders, and we can't forget skateboarders, Tel Aviv is also ranked the 10th best skateboarding city in the world by Trans World Skateboarding. Um and that is sport. I'm going to tell you a couple of more things. So I, in all the other episodes, I went over all of the um, the different things to see and the different things to do. I'm going to hit a couple of highlights because there are so many things to do in Tel Aviv. One of which is um, eat. 
So Tel Aviv is one of the best places uh, to eat in the world. And it has amazing restaurants. One of my favorite shawarma places on the planet is there around the corner from the hotel, which is the Sea Executive Suites, which is right on right on the beach um a, a lot of the hotels there's this entire row see i was going to break it up into different sections but you kind of can't because a lot of the beaches are right on the hotel are a lot of hotels are right i said that horribly a lot of the hotels are right on the beaches and right near them are a lot of the hotels um and they run the entire length of the city. It's absolutely amazing. My favorite place is the Sea Executive Suites, um, which is right almost midway right down the beach. Um, it's, I think it's a couple of doors down from the U.S. consulate. Um, and there are a couple of restaurants that are amazing right there. There's also a number of restaurants that are amazing throughout the city. There's clubs everywhere. There is one of my favorite things to do, which is the Carmel Market, which is the Shook. And that, again, food everywhere. All the shopping you can do. Then there's the Dizengoff Mall. There's just so much stuff to do in Tel Aviv. And then there's the beach, which is awesome. I love Tel Aviv, if you can't tell. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, hey, if you like this episode, hit the like button and the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the notification bell so you can get up to date on the brand new episodes. Um, please, please, please share this, uh, share this podcast with your friends and your family. Um, you can find us if you want to take us with you on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, and as I said, uh, this episode is sponsored by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards, the best way to learn Hebrew and the best way to brush up. Um, it's available on Amazon for Kindle, you can get Kindle downloaded to any of your devices. It's available for Android, um, iPhone, iPad, PC, and for Mac. And a download link is available in the description below. Um, yeah, we. I'm, I'm working on that. I swear. I swear. I'm working on the newest, uh, the newest deck, which is Verbs. It's just... It's so meaty. There's so much to it. So it's taking me a while. I apologize. Um, also, check out my uh, the bedtime story that I wrote, illustrated by Donna Korolkova. It is called Who is a Jew? And it's a bedtime story to tell your kid how awesome it is to be Jewish. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Yalla, bye. Shall I be not
הושטתי לפרח הנשאר. מולדת 